to read some scripture for us. Anybody like to come and just read uh, Genesis chapter 15? Pick on someone. I don't like to do that because people feel embarrassed. Oh, good on you. Uh, yeah, just all, the whole chapter would be great. So reading Genesis chapter 15 and we're going to read the whole chapter. Actually, you can leave the last verse out because it's just a list of rather... Odd names. But you can tackle it if you want to. Give it a go. All right. We can all have a good laugh at you. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliza of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, of the Chaldeans, to give you this land, to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these things to him, cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace. And be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Ammonites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, Euphrates. Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, and so on and so forth. (laughs) Well done, thank you. Father, as we uh, come to your word this morning, we pray that uh, the truth which it contains, Lord, would come and um, 
find a resting place in our hearts and lives and it would bring transformation and change to us. Lord, uh, may the Holy Spirit come and open our ears and our eyes to hear and to see what we need to know this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we looked at um, the role of doubt in Abraham's um, faith journey. Abraham found himself in a place where he's actually struggling uh, to trust in a God who'd uh, given, a, given him a promise but as yet hadn't come through. And so he was searching for some kind of uh, assurance to address this suspicion and mistrust that, um, that had been begun to develop in Abraham's heart and mind towards God. And we I guess we encourage you uh, last week to not be afraid of, of doubt, but to see that as it did in the life of Abraham, if we have honest and sincere questions, that God doesn't reject us, he doesn't rebuke us, and he certainly won't renege on his promise because we have questions concerning uh, who God is or what God may have said to us. But as you see in the life of Abraham, his doubt actually, God used that as a, as, a, as a stepping stone for God to bring about a profound moment in Abraham's life. And last week we said that um, God's response to Abraham's um, questioning was to invite Abraham to gather the elements for a blood sacrifice. And what God did was God spoke to Abraham in a culturally familiar way. For us, um, the response of God to Abraham's question seems so alien. But for Abraham, or Abraham at the time, um, God's instruction to him was very clearly understood. And so when when God said to Abraham, bring me a, a, a heifer, a, a goat, um, a ram, um, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon, immediately within Abraham's cultural context, he understood that God was in effect saying to him, let Abraham, let's lay to rest once and for all the questions and the concerns and the mistrust and the suspicion that you have about my character and my ability to do what I said that I would do for you. And Abraham, let's, you and I, let us enter into a blood covenant agreement. And let's ratify this contract. Let's ratify my promise to you. Let's seal this thing in blood. I explained last week how in the, the world in which Abraham lived, um, they lived in a storytelling uh, culture in which they acted out and dramatised their commitments and contracts. In the Hebrew uh, language, uh, the word for covenant is, um, is the word bereth or beret, depends which Hebrew school you went to. It's pronounced B-E-R-I-T-H. And it, uh, it means to cut, but it means to cut, and it contains within it uh, this uh, impl- implication. It means to cut so that blood will flow. 
And so what covenant is, or was certainly within the culture of, of Abraham, is a legally binding contract or agreement that is sealed by blood. Now, throughout um, human, human history from uh, many cultures adopted some form of blood covenant ritual as uh, their system for establishing secure and permanent relationships. It was the method used by primitive and, and ancient peoples to do a number of things, to uh, seal legal agreements. So if, they were, if there was some sort of legal transaction taking place, they might seal that transaction with a blood covenant. Um, to foster and create or establish clear understanding between people of different backgrounds. They would ratify that understanding with a blood covenant. Or uh, to create a business partnership. If uh, two parties were entering into a business transaction, they might seal that transaction with a blood covenant. Um, if two warring uh, tribes wanted to establish a peace treaty with one another. When they uh, came to a uh, uh, to a place of peace, they would ratif ratify that treaty by having a blood covenant ceremony. Or, and the the highest form of covenant was when two people, out of love and respect for one another, just wanted to seal their friendship by affirming their love for one another by shedding of blood. And we'll unpack what that meant. And so the ancient world in which Abraham lived, um, and in some pockets of the world today, covenant, uh, the, the world operated by, by covenant. Unfortunately, the practice and the value and the meaning of covenant has seems so foreign to us, and, and, and it's lost its significance uh, in our modern world. And it's my conviction that the loss of covenant is the single greatest contributor to why most Christians struggle in their Christian life. If there was one message that I alone could preach and, and, and share with you, it would be that which I'm going to share today and next week. If I was told there's just one thing that you can share uh, with people, what would that message be? It would be blood covenant. And I would try my hardest to explain what blood covenant is because my understanding is that when you get this right, so many other things in the Bible make sense. There were three reasons, um, the primary reasons why people entered into blood covenant. I've sort of just touched on them, but let me just explain the primary motivations for people entering into covenant. Number one was for protection. A small tribe would seek to make a covenant with a larger tribe to ensure their safety and survival. So you've got a little group of pygmies over this side of the forest and they're fearful of this kind of these giants that live over this side of the forest. And so what the pygmies would try to do is try to create for their, their, their ongoing survival 
They understood that these guys over here were bigger and nastier than they were, and so they would seek to initiate or establish some sort of covenant relationship that would ensure their protection and ensure their safety. The second reason was around um, business security. Business people would create alliances with their competitors. So instead of being in competition, they would establish a mutually beneficial partnership where they'd work together rather than against one another. So if you had a competitor that you kind of could had the potential, their business interests could overpower yours, you would seek perhaps what we would call a merger, a business merger, so that you wouldn't find yourself in a place of, um, of, uh, of uh, weakness. And then the third thing, which I mentioned earlier, is just purely out of love and out of friendship and out of respect for a friend that you would seek to seal your devotion to one another uh, by entering into a blood covenant relationship. And if you uh, take time to read 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through to 4, you'll see David and Jonathan, two friends, um, entering into such a covenant relationship. The blood covenant um, ceremony, um, there were a couple of, uh, well, a, a number of methods depending on the culture that you are involved in, but um, the most basic and most common form of blood covenant ceremony involved two people or two parties coming together, and what they would do is they would make an incision in their hand uh, or perhaps in their wrist so that blood would flow. This was in the age prior to HIV and hepatitis and all that kind of stuff. And so you'd make a, an incision in your hand or in your wrist so that blood began to flow. And then what you would do is you would shake hands with your blood covenant partner so that your blood flowed out of your body into their body and their blood flowed out of their body into your body. Another way would be like that. You might have seen that form of handshake. That was the most basic and most um, common uh, way of um, entering into a, into a, I guess, a, a, a blood covenant ceremony. Blood symbolizes what? Life. The Bible says life is in the blood. And when they were exchanging, um, exchanging blood, they would say something along these lines. My life is flowing into you. Your life is flowing into me. We are one. What I'm actually doing now, we're, we're actually, this is anthropological. This is stuff that takes, still does take place, but was fundamental in um, um, ancient times. This is a, um, an anthrop anthropological truth, okay? So this is not something just made up and sounds kind of pretty. This stuff was commonplace, particularly in the ancient world. 
As this interaction is taking place, the exchange of blood and this uh, confession of our life is flowing into one another and we are one, they'd also, in this basic um, blood covenant ceremony, make vows and promises to each other and they would verbalise the terms of the covenant. And from that moment on, they were known as blood brothers. I don't know if any kids ever did this kind of thing with their mates. Yeah, a few of us did that kind of thing. Those of us who could endure the pain and all that sort of stuff. So, yes, heroes. So what we would see today as a common handshake actually has its origins and its roots deeply embedded within blood covenant culture. It probably wasn't all that long ago, maybe just go back 30, 40, 50 years within our own society, whereas if you, if you made a promise to somebody and you shook hands on it, it was a done deal. The reason is it was like an echo of this framework of understanding that a handshake was a sign or a symbol of this unbreakable, sealed agreement between two people or two parties. We wouldn't do that today. If you were wanting to, uh, uh, we, we, we live in a world where even now with our legal contracts, um, there's fine print and exclusion clauses written into this thing. So in our today's world, it would be unlikely that if we were to enter into a legal transaction with somebody, we'd simply make a promise and shake on it. However, in not so long ago, less than 50 years ago, even within our, our culture, within our society, it was the way in which people conducted and practiced uh, business and relationships. There was an alternative to this, um, this common ritual, and that was rather than um, just uh, shaking, shedding blood and shaking hands, we would uh, cut ourselves. I won't demonstrate this this morning, but we would take a cup and we would drop our blood into a cup together and we would mix that and then together from the same cup we would drink That was done in more uh, crude and more primitive cultures, but nevertheless, the understanding was the same. Your life is entering me, as is my life is entering you, and we are one. Whatever form the ceremony took, those entering the blood covenant um, did so with the following understanding. It would be this. I am entering into a legally binding, unbreakable contract that is sealed in blood. If I ever were to renege on the covenant, which would be unthinkable, but if I ever was to break my covenant promise, it would require my death. So you'd never entered into a covenant flippantly or casually or just it was just a ho-hum kind of, 
Um, oh, this kind of seems like a nice thing to do. Let's enter into a blood covenant contract. This thing could potentially cost, my, cost me my life if I were to break it. It's interesting that um, uh, Dr. David Livingstone, who was the Scottish missionary explorer to Africa, he, um, he did some, uh, in fact, we'll look at this a little later on, but when he travelled Africa, he understood African culture at that time was founded on the making of covenant. What he discovered was there was no knowledge at that time of a blood covenant ever being broken. That was back in the, back in the 1800s. It was an unthinkable thing that you would actually break a blood covenant. The second thing that, um, that you understood if you were entering into a blood covenant contract is this. I'm entering into a contract that has clearly defined and clearly understood conditions, promises, oaths, vows, and penalties. It was all very explicit. I'm entering into covenant, and there are some very clear uh, terms, very clear promises, vows, um, and penalties to be incurred should there be a breaking of covenant. The third um, understanding was, as I enter into covenant, I, I now have complete confidence and assurance concerning the other person or party's integrity. All mistrust and suspicion comes to an end when you enter into a blood covenant contract with another person. Fourthly, I'm entering into an unbreakable bond. I am united and I am joined in a permanent union with my covenant partner. This relationship will last us until we die. The thing about blood brothers is blood brothers never viewed themselves as independent or autonomous entities. Once you entered into a blood covenant agreement with somebody, you never saw yourself as a lone individual again. You never thought of yourself as, I'm just doing life by myself. You understood you had joined yourself inseparably to another person. Your life was now intertwined with the life of another and their life with yours. And the other really significant aspect of a blood covenant Ceremony, agreement, arrangement was this. I am entering into a covenant in which I am the covenant head or the covenant representative. That is, my children, even if they yet, are yet unborn, those kids that are yet in me, are entering into that covenant together with me. This is a perpetual, enduring covenant covenant relationship it lives beyond me and my life my kids that are in me are entering into this covenant agreement that I have made 
with this covenant partner. They are obligated because they're included in me to fulfill the terms and conditions of the covenant. The ancient Middle Eastern covenant ritual, which included um, the Hebrew people, they engaged in a very dramatic covenant ceremony, which involved the following components. The first thing that would happen is that if I was to enter into a covenant with, um, with someone, is I would take off my jacket or my cloak or my, my mantle. I'd have to be very careful of my technology at the time. <laughs> Who's got a jacket? Graham, would you mind taking off your jacket? My jacket symbolizes who I am as a, per, as a person. This is me. This jacket rep, symbolizes and represents me. It's my personhood. It is also my property. It's all, it represents all that I am and all that I have. And I give that to my covenant partner who places it on himself. And I take their jacket and I slip upon myself their personhood and their promise. <laughs> we might swap jackets back. But what, I, what we're enacting is that I take on the other person's life. My life and their life are merged together. I no longer see myself as a person that lives autonomously, independently, my life is wrapped up in the life of another. And this cloak that I wear with pride represents the fact that I'm in relationship with someone whose property also belongs to me. And likewise, my property is also available and accessible to them any time that they have a need. They can come and they can knock on my door and say, Steve... I need this or that or the other. In fact, they wouldn't even have to ask. They would just simply come and take because we're one. It belongs to them. Thanks, Mike. The second thing that we would do within a, if we were Hebrews or living within that um, Middle Eastern culture is we would take off our belts. I'll keep mine on. Today, we wear belts to keep up our trousers or for fashion reasons. But in ancient times, the belt was the place in which you kept your weapons, your sword or your knife, whatever it was. And so the exchange of belts was symbolized your commitment to protect and to defend your covenant partner. And from that point on, you knew that you never fought another fight by yourself. You were never alone in whatever battle that you faced, whatever challenge you faced. You knew that you never fought that fight alone. 
that you had someone, you were in relationship with someone who had committed, who had pledged to come to your defense at any time. Now, the way that this worked, and I mentioned David Livingston, when David Livingston, as a, as a pioneer um, missionary explorer, went to Africa, it was a, the African continent at that time was, was incredibly dangerous. And so to freely travel, um, you needed to kind of find some, some way of, of um, making your way around um, without fear. And so David, uh, David Livingston stumbled upon the concept of covenant. And so when he arrived in Africa, what he did was he made a blood covenant with a particular tribe. And they did the mark in the, uh, in the wrist or in the hand. And that mark, they'd, make a, uh, they'd take that 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 uh, wound and then they put a pigment or dye within it so it left a visible permanent scar and so that scar when David Livingston went around um, he wasn't just some kind of lone white poor anemic missionary explorer he was David Livingston in covenant relationship with another tribe. And I can't remember how many uh, covenants he made. Maybe he's, I don't know, tens, scores. It might even be a hundred or so. But he made a lot. And so his arm, or his arms, were covered in scars. And that was, if you like, his passport to travel the continent of Africa safely. Because to touch David Livingston was to immediately... Stir up in his defense a whole number of other tribes, and you just didn't know who those tribes were. And so, what enabled David Livingston to travel freely and without fear was the fact that he had developed covenant with a whole range of parties. The third thing that a Hebrew person would do is they would take an animal. And they would slay that animal in half. And they would place the two pieces on the ground. It's a pretty, pretty bloody sort of um, event. And what they would do, if I can get somebody who would like to come and join me. Yeah, you can come. We'd slay the animal, and uh, what we would do is we would stand back to back in the midst of a, of a slain animal. And what we would do is we would begin to uh, walk through the pieces of the slain animal in a figure eight. The figure eight represents, uh, symbolizes infinity or eternity. It's the no beginning, no end. It's just this continuous. And what that does is symbolize that I am about to enter into a perpetual relationship with you. And so we would walk through the, the pieces of the slain animal. And while we did so, we would proclaim and declare, we would verbalize 
the terms and the conditions of the covenant. We would proclaim and we'd speak out promises and vows and oaths, blessings and curses. And then we would find ourselves face to face in the midst of the slain animal. We would then take a knife and we would make a score in our wrists or in our hands and we would shed blood. We would then shake hands. And that moment in time, we viewed ourselves and everybody that, that knew us knew that we were in that moment in time had officially, legally become one entity. Inseparable. We are joined together in union. Not only us, but also those who are in us, who are yet to come. We would then trade names. So I would take on something of my covenant partner's name and they would take on something of my name. And then we would, as we mentioned, seal the wound in the hand or the wrist with some dye or some pigment that caused a permanent reminder to us that we were in covenant relationship with another. That my life source wasn't just me, but somebody else's life source had entered into my life. And every time I looked at that scar, it reminded me and was a sign to those around about me that I was joined to another. There was somebody in this world that I had responsibilities and obligations to other than myself. Then in the presence of um, witnesses, we would make a declaration, something along these lines. All I have is yours. My property and my resources are available to you. If you ever have a need, all you have to do is to come and ask, and I will give it to you. If you have a debt, I will provide a promissory note to clear your debts. Likewise, my children are yours, and when I die, they become yours by adoption, and you will raise them as your own. Once all of that is done, we would then sit down and we would enjoy and share a very simple covenant meal which um, uh, contained two very simple basic elements. Does anybody want to guess what they are? Bread and wine. We take that bread which symbolised the fact that we were one body. We would break that bread and we would feed one another. And in feeding one another, we would be symbolizing and saying, your life has entered into me. My life has entered into you. We are one 
we are of the same substance. And then we take a cup of wine and drink together from it. And that wine was simply represented the blood that had been shed by the slain animals and also their own blood that had been shed through which they now had a shared life. And then finally, they would establish a memorial. That might be a tree is planted somewhere or a a stone is placed somewhere and the tree or the stone is sprinkled with blood. And that tree or that stone represents or bears witness forever to a covenant that has been entered into. And the ceremony at that point in time is is then complete. And from that moment on, the covenant parties are known as friends. There's an, an ancient Arabic traditional saying that says, Um, blood is thicker than milk. And the thinking behind that um, saying is this, that when you entered into a blood covenant partnership with somebody else, into a blood covenant, you became blood brothers with somebody. That bond was stronger, was stronger than the bond between those who were nurtured at the breast of their mother. It's a stronger bond than that which is between two siblings that have been nurtured at the same breast. Blood is thicker than milk. The remarkable, profound... Incredible, amazing story of the Bible is that God initiated such a covenant with a man called Abraham. When God said to Abraham, Abraham, we need to deal with this doubt and this confusion and this uncertainty about my character and my ability to follow through with my promise. Bring the elements for a blood covenant. In that moment in time, Abraham knew that God was coming into his world and speaking in a language and an idiom that was understandable to him that was for to ever reshape and reframe the way he understood his relationship with God and the way in which he was to relate to God from that moment on. This was not just God verbalising some words, making an idle promise that may or may not come to pass. This was God coming to Abraham and pledging himself This was God coming and sealing that relationship in blood. For Abraham, 
All of those elements of the blood covenant, they were familiar to him. He understood what it was that God was doing. God was throwing out an invite to Abraham for Abraham and God to become inseparably one. In union, together, for all eternity, and not just Abraham by himself, but as the representative head, all those that were in Abraham's loins at the time, all of those children that were yet to be born were also, as Abraham as the covenant representative head, was carrying within him those who were his offspring. Abraham got it. Abraham knew what God was offering, and Abraham didn't hesitate. When two individuals on a human level enter into a covenant, we both have something to offer one another, and we both have something that we can receive from each other. But when you stop to think about it, when the created enters into a covenant with the creator, what is it that the created can actually offer? The answer to that is nothing. There's nothing that, I, I mean, God owns the world and everything in it belongs to God. There's nothing that Abraham can give. There's nothing that Abraham can offer. There's nothing really that Abraham, there's nothing that Abraham can bring to the table. And so what takes place in this incredible scenario here in Genesis 15 is that God puts Abraham into a deep sleep. In other words, Abraham is passive. Abraham doesn't do anything. But what he does see while he's asleep is this vision. And he actually sees something take place. In verse 17, uh, verse 17 of chapter 15, it says, When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. While Abraham's in this sleep-like trance, someone else takes Abraham's place. Someone else takes it upon themselves to represent Abraham in that walking through of the slain animal. And what is taking place in that moment of time is Jesus becomes Abraham's substitute or representative. And it's Abraham, sorry, it's Jesus 
who takes Abraham's place in this covenant ritual. And what Abraham witnessed in that event is he saw God the Father, the smoking firepot, and he saw Jesus, the Son of God, the, um, the, the blazing torch, appear and enter into a covenant with one another on Abraham's behalf. In John chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus refers to us to this event in this way. He said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. What took place in that establishment of a covenant is that Abraham became an heir with God. God and Abraham became inseparably and eternally joined together, legally bound, sealed by blood in a covenant that cannot and will not be broken ever. Certainly not on God's behalf. Because if God were to ever renege on the covenant, the penalty for breaking covenant is death. And God in his mercy and in God in his kindness saw that Abraham in reality would be unable to live out the fulfilling of the covenant. And that is why God gave a representative or a substitute in Abraham's place, someone that Abraham could look to and say, that one took my place. And therefore, the sealing of the covenant between God and Abraham was done by someone who could walk the walk, who could live the life. And Abraham saw and witnessed profound grace at work. What Abraham understood and what he saw was that as an heir of God, it wasn't based on his performance or on his goodness, but on God's action in Christ. Abraham did nothing to achieve or deserve the relationship that God initiated with him. The only thing that Abraham had to do was to accept and embrace what God had done on his behalf. The implications and the parallels for us are incredibly profound. And we will look at those implications next week. Can I just say a couple of things? On a human level, the closest thing that we know within our culture to a blood covenant is a marriage relationship. That's why God says the two shall become one. It's talking about covenant. 
The whole act of communion, the celebration, the taking of the bread and the cup only makes sense to us really when we understand the historical context of blood covenant. The phrase that is used and littered throughout the New Testament in Christ, you read the Paul's writings, you would have seen this term in Christ. That is all about covenant. That is covenant language. It's about union. It's about being inseparably connected and joined together with Jesus. What happened to Jesus happens to us. We'll unpack how the covenant outworked in Abraham's life and how that affects and influences us today. What does it mean for us to enter into this covenant? But what we're going to do, uh, Chloe, do you want to just come? What we are going to do now is take within our hands the two emblems. which represented, in Abraham's time, covenant meal. The one loaf. That was a declaration of us and our covenant partner being one. When we take this bread, what we are declaring is that our life is forever intertwined and connected with the life of God. We do not live life in isolation or independence. We do not face battles alone. Our life is intrinsically connected to the life of God. And as we eat, we celebrate and rejoice that our world is wrapped up in the world of God. I just... Is that on? Having heard this message so many times and I'm absolutely passionate about it. But you know what? Every single one of us have broken covenant with God. Every single one of us have broken covenant. And our representative head had to die because we broke covenant. Jesus is our representative head and he had to die because we broke covenant. And what we're sharing today is the fact that our representative head faced death because we chose to break covenant. Not only did we break covenant, we simply can't keep covenant. We don't have the capacity within ourselves to live out the fullness of, of the covenant at all times. And God knew that, and in his grace and in his mercy, in what's the Old Testament word is, Kesed, C-H-E-S-E-D. It's covenant love, loving kindness, the covenant love of God that drove and motivated God to do this for us. And so let us eat and drink 
of a piece of bread, which is recognition of our union together with God. And then let's take the cup and this cup represents the blood of the Son of God which was shed in order for us to be brought into union with him. But as we drink, remember it's his life. Life is in the blood. His life is in us. Our life source is not just us struggling to somehow make it through this life in this world. But we have a life source other than our own. When Paul said, it is no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives within me, and the life that I now now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God, that wasn't just really great theology. That was Paul speaking from within the context or the framework of his understanding of covenant. And we just drink in recognition of the life that we share with God. Louise and I were just praying and um, this morning and back in my mind as we're praying, I couldn't help but think about what I was going to be sharing on today. And it just dawned on me that when you understand covenant, the overriding sign is joy and thankfulness. You can't be in cover, understand this truth and be in despair, no matter how bad, no matter how rough it is. And that's why the name Isaac, the son of promise that came to Abraham and Sarah, was named Isaac. And Isaac means the sound of laughter. When you have a group of people or an individual that knows that they're in covenant relationship with God, there will always be the sound of laughter. And it's almost like you can gauge your level of understanding or comprehension or embrace of covenant by your degree of thankfulness and degree of joy.